The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. Good morning to you. Hey, this is so much fun. Um, Even though our family said farewell to you all almost four years ago now, uh, we still talk about you all the time, and we do actually still miss you. And so, true story, there's not a month that goes by in the Murata house that Park Church isn't referenced in some capacity. And uh, we are so grateful for a continued partnership with you all. Every year I get to come back here and meet with your elders and your staff to pray together, to share ideas, to get a little bit of coaching and guidance. And as we are doing this new work of planting a church in Richmond, it has been so, so helpful. And so we're thankful for y'all. And uh, this might sound a little weird uh, for those of us who don't know each other, but I care about you. And I care about you because you are a part of this church. Even if we don't know each other, because you are a part of this body, I care about you. And uh, it, is, it does not escape me the irony of the fact that I'm the one talking right now, because so far over the past uh, maybe six years, I have done nothing but receive from Park Church. This was the church where when our family was in seminary, we were wrestling through, okay, we're learning all this great theological stuff, but how do you apply it? How do you actually live this stuff out? And Park was the context where we worked all of that and struggled through all of that. And then over the past couple of years, this has been the church that has been supporting us financially and also supporting us with guidance and counsel and advice. And so to a church that has taught us so much, it is a little strange to be the one actually doing the teaching. Um, but uh, what I want to say to you, um, you know, as Neil referenced, is that as our family has gotten into this work of planting a new church, what we found is that even though we're in different denominations with kind of our own traditions and all that good stuff, what we're found is that um, we are seeing the gospel of Jesus transform people's lives. And it is, in fact, the same gospel that is transforming people's lives here in Denver. And so even though we're in two different cities and two different cultures, separated almost, you know, kind of, uh, you know, two time zones away, we're actually being faithful to the same gospel, which means we're facing some of the same challenges and we're doing a lot of the same work. And like you, our new church has a summer sermon series in the Psalms. We don't call it Christ in the Psalms, we call it summer in the Psalms, because we're like Richmond and Southern, like a little more gentle. And so summer in the Psalms is like our gentle way of saying it. Um, And the question we're asking every week is the same question that you all are asking, which is where is Jesus in this Psalm? And therefore, how does this Psalm teach us to follow Jesus? And before we begin, we've got to admit that reading the Psalms and learning to pray the Psalms is a very difficult thing, and it does not come naturally to any one of us. You know, when we, the Psalms are poetic prayers written thousands of years ago in a different language, and so if you are the kind of person who when you open your Bible to the Psalms and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that our church is teaching us to do, I'm going to learn how to pray this thing, and then it feels a little clunky and it doesn't connect and you're seeing all these metaphors that don't really make any sense to you and doesn't feel relevant to your life, and you all, all of you are tempted to close the Bible and go like, this is not relevant to me right now. Just know that you are normal. That makes you a normal human being for at least four reasons. There's probably more, but at least four. First, language. This was written in Hebrew thousands of years ago, and now it's translated into English, which means it does not flow smoothly. the, The grammar is a little off. It doesn't talk the way we talk. Second is poetry. Most of us, if you're anything like me, do not read poetry all that often. It is an unfamiliar genre to us. And more than that, we don't regard poetry as the highest form of artistic expression the way the ancients did. 
which means we tend to think of film and movies as the highest form of expression today. Here's what I mean. If you hear a good story or you read a great book, what you probably think is like, this book is so good, it should be made into a movie. Like, that's what it means for something to reach the pinnacle of artistic expression. Nobody walks out of the Avengers, the new Avengers movie, and he's like, wow, that movie was so good, it should be made into an epic poem. (laughs) Right? Like, we don't think that way, but actually the ancients did. Poetry being the highest form of artistic expression. Third, memorization. The Psalms were written to be memorized, internalized. The thing about understanding poetry is you have to hold the whole thing in your head in order for it to make any sense. If you get to the end of a poem and you forgot how it began, you're not going to understand it. But we don't memorize things, do we? We've got Siri and Wikipedia. Why would you memorize anything? (laughs) But in order to understand the Psalms, we have to get it inside of us, which means we have to memorize it. Now, finally, the Psalms point both backwards and forwards, backwards to events that happened in the earlier in the Old Testament, forwards to events that would happen later in the New Testament. And symbolically, the Psalms sit right in the middle of the Bible, right in between, pointing both backwards and forwards. But that means that the problem for most of us is that the Psalms keep referencing things that we don't know about. The Psalms keep referencing parts of the Bible that we're not familiar with. And so because we're not as familiar with the overall arching story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, when we open the Psalms, there's all these references that we don't get. And so for those four reasons and probably a lot more, you and I open the Psalms and there's not an immediate connection. And I want you to know that that is normal. That makes you a normal human being. But the reality this morning and every morning is that Jesus is waiting to meet us in the Psalms. And Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit which means that even though all of those barriers stand in our way, we actually still stand a chance of understanding Psalm 80, the text in front of us. And so, before we begin, let's pray for the Spirit to help us. Father in heaven, we pray and thank you for the gift of your good word to us in the Psalms. This morning, we ask that you would illuminate your word so that our minds can understand it and that you would reveal yourself so that our hearts can receive you. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you still have a Bible near you, would you open it back up to page 491 to Psalm 80? Let's, let's situate this psalm in its original context. It's approximately 740 to 720 BCE, and the Assyrian army, in the, which is the world's superpower at the time, has invaded and conquered the ten northern tribes of the nation of Israel and forcibly relocated them, essentially absorbed them into the great Assyrian empire. And this means that the author of this psalm, a guy named Asaph, who is part of the two southern tribes of Judah, is writing this, and he's writing out of this sense that um, they now have, instead of their relatives and friends as their northern border, they now have enemies on their northern border. It it would be like this. It would be like if you live in Minnesota, which I'm sorry if that's you, uh, but if you live in Minnesota, it would be like North Korea conquers Canada. That's how it feels. Like you're used to having these very kind and benevolent, like deferential Canadians to the north, and then all of a sudden you've got North Koreans to the north. It's a little bit different. It's kind of anxiety producing. And so Asaph writes this song as a corporate lament, which means that this is a song, and it really is a song, that all the people of Judah would have gotten together to sing as a way of processing and praying and grieving through what had just happened to their friends and neighbors and relatives and their fear of what might happen to them next. So this is a corporate response to crisis. And it really is a song. If you've got the text in front of you, look, it's got, it's got three verses and it's got this chorus, this chorus that repeats three times in verse 3, in verse 7, and verse 19. Now, I realize that lament 
might be a yet another unfamiliar thing for us. And so here's a quick definition. Lament is an intentional response to crisis that properly orients us to ourselves, to our situation, and to God. Lament is an intentional response to crisis that orients us to ourselves and to our situation and to God. And why is it important, why is it important that you and I learn to lament through Psalm 80? Well, it's because you and I woke up to this morning, as we do most mornings, inundated with terrible news and threats every single day. And if you're anything like me, you're not sure how to respond. You know, in the medical world, they talk about compassion fatigue, where you're so, you know, surrounded by trauma that you just don't care anymore. You, like, dull yourself to it and tune out. I think a lot of us today have crisis and grief fatigue, where at a deep level, most of us know that we, we probably should engage emotionally to the regular, like, news feed that we wake up to every morning, but it's just so much that we don't want to. And so we dull ourselves to it. And what's more, I think we do the same thing at a personal level. Not only do we do it to the crises out there, but we also do it to the stuff that happens to us much, much even in our own homes. And so Psalm 80 teaches us to lament for our own inner hearts to change in the midst of an outer crisis by giving us three things. And if you're taking notes, these are going to be kind of three things to, to notice. First, by giving us recognition that we need God's help. Second, by giving us reality, that our troubles are in fact real and not imagined. And third, by giving us restoration, that we, the restoration that we long for, the deep, which is to say the deep inner and outer change that can only come through Christ. So three things, recognition, reality, and restoration. Let's begin with recognition. Picking up in verses one and two, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. So in these first two simple verses, we have the answer to one of the oldest questions that has ever been asked about God in the midst of crisis. Is God good or is he powerful? Or how could he be both? In verse 1, we recognize that God is our shepherd and therefore, as shepherd has responsibility to care for the sheep. Sheep are not asked to take care of themselves. That's a shepherd's job. And so we see the responsibility for caring for people actually doesn't lie with people, it lies with God. And then in verse 2, we recognize that he is the king and he continues to reign in power. And so if you put those two together, you see that God wants to care for us. He has the responsibility to care for us and he has the power to do so. That God is both good and powerful. He can be both at the same time. They're not pitted against each other. And y'all, this pushes against our self-sufficiency. Because our natural inclination in the midst of any crisis, large or small, at home or out there, is to fix it ourselves, Right? Surely I'm not the only one who struggles with this. Last week, our air conditioning broke, which I realize uh, in, in Denver is like no big deal. Like you kind of don't need it anyway because it's beautiful here and there's no humidity. But in Richmond, Virginia, you like might as well move if your air conditioning doesn't work. So our air conditioning broke and uh, I did what I'm sure many of you have done, which is I took off the panels of our HVAC unit and I just started poking around. And uh, my wonderful bride who uh, is long-suffering and patient, kind of poked her head in the room and was like, hey, um, honey, uh, do, you, do you know what you're doing? And um, years ago, I would have given this kind of response. Years ago, I would have said, hey, look, sweetheart, I have a degree in psychology, which qualifies me to work on people's brains. Uh, how much more complicated could an HVAC system be? Um, but over the years, I've actually learned that a, a better response is, yeah, we should probably call someone. So we did. Um, this instinct that we have, though, to fix things ourselves, 
before asking for help goes a lot deeper because the more competent you and I are, the less likely we are to ask for help. And so ironically, it's those of us who ask for help the least who need this psalm the most. If you are smart, talented, and relatively successful in what you do, as I know many of you are, then self-sufficiency is always going to be a temptation for you. And when faced with crisis, whether at work or in your, in your personal life, the thing that you're going to do if you're anything like me is to dig in your heels and insist that you've got this thing under control, that you can handle it. And the gift of verses 1 and 2 is this very gentle and yet very firm reminder and recognition that God is the one responsible for your well-being and not you, which is a gift. Friends, true prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. True prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. When you reach the point of being willing to ask for help, you are ready to authentically start praying. And until that point, you are not. If you think that you can somehow maintain, your, maintain the sense of competence and self-sufficiency and like, I got this because I'm a mature, competent, skilled, talented, successful person, and then I want to just add prayer to my life because some spirituality would be a good idea, you will miss the whole point of prayer. And you'll actually never be able to pray authentically from your heart because true prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. So as we're learning to lament for change in the midst of crisis, first we're properly oriented to ourselves, which is to recognize that we aren't self-sufficient and we need God to rescue us. Now second, we need to be properly oriented towards our situation, which means we've got to face reality head on. Verses 4 through 6 say this. By the way, I'm going to skip verse 3 and save it for later to come back to. Verses 4 through 6 say, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You've fed them with the bread of tears. You've given them tears to drink in full measure. You've made us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh amongst themselves. So what's the reality here? Reality number one is the reality of how we feel. The psalmist is saying, God, it feels like you are distant and you've abandoned me. And this teaches us, y'all, to be emotionally honest. It's not sinful to feel a feeling. I hope that you know that. It is not sinful to feel a feeling, but it is to let that feeling control you. And so emotional honesty is a necessary part of facing reality, admitting to God and to yourself how you actually feel. And the imagery here is powerful, isn't it? Bread of tears. Tears to drink in full measure, which is like saying tears by the gallon. This is pointing to the reality of what lament and grief feel like for us. It feels like all we have are our tears and nothing else. Now, reality number two is the reality of being a part, is that the reality is that being a part of God's people is actually humiliating for the most part, at least in a public sense. The reality is that there really are people who think that you are ridiculous for being here this morning. It's not imagined, good news. It's not imagined. It's not in your head. There really are neighbors who think that you are absurd for being here. And the psalmist is putting these two things together. He's saying, God, it feels like you are distant, and also people are making fun of me for following you. And those two together are a formula for quitting. And I know that some of us walked in here this morning this close to being ready to throw in the towel on this whole gospel Jesus Christian thing. Because when you simultaneously feel 
that God is distant and he's not close to you. You open your Bible and read it, and you feel like you get nothing out of it. You try to pray, and you're just not connecting. You try to worship here, and for whatever reason, it's just not working. You feel like God is distant. And then in combination with that, your neighbors and your coworkers and maybe even your family members are giving you a hard time for this. That is a recipe for quitting. And I want to recognize that some of us walked in here this morning about that close to it. And so to those of you who feel that way, I want you to listen to how the psalmist responds to that. Look with me at verses 8 through 13. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This is agricultural imagery. This is a metaphor. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the seas and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. So in the midst of feeling like quitting, the author begins to recount the history of Israel. He's remembering all that God has already done for them. He's remembering that God has already freed them from slavery in Egypt, that God planted Israel in this promised land, that this, this nation grew and flourished under the leadership of King David and King Solomon, the golden age of the nation of Israel. But now it's recognizing that it feels like things are in a current state of decline, that there's a narrative here that things used to be great, but they're not anymore. And so the third reality is the reality that God has worked in amazing ways in the past but that it feels like he has stopped working. It's the story that things aren't as good now as they used to be. And you and I hear this narrative of decline in all sorts of ways. We hear this everywhere. We hear it um, in our political discourse. Folks on both sides of the aisle are talking about how things in the U.S. of A. are not as good now as they used to be. And we disagree on what the reasons are for that, but everyone's talking about it. We also hear this narrative of decline in our educational institutions, particularly in our colleges. There's like my Facebook feed is full of articles about how universities are not educating people the way they used to. We hear this narrative of decline in our families. Marriages are falling apart faster than ever before. It feels like many parents are turning over parenting to like technology and iPads rather than actually doing the work themselves. And so we feel this, we hear this narrative of decline all over. And I think we, we hear this and feel this most especially if you've ever been the kind of person who's felt like, you know, in an earlier phase of life, I felt like God was really close. I was close with God. I, I felt like I was reading my Bible and actually connecting with Him. I actually felt like I was living life with God, but it has not felt that way for years. And so it feels like things were really good back then, but they're not so now. It feels like God was working in my life, but He's not anymore. And these verses force us to face the reality of that feeling head on and to talk about it. Facing reality keeps us, y'all, from self-deception. In the face of bad news, most of us tend to avoid or distract. Here's, here's how this works. In the face of bad news, like say you get fired from your job, most of us would tend to spin that and to kind of go with something like, um, you know, I was planning on quitting anyway. You know, this actually saves me the trouble, saves me the, it saves me a hard conversation. Or um, if you've ever been dumped, as I have, um, then uh, you just kind of go, you know, uh, that, 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 we just weren't connecting anyway. I was going to have to break it off, and I'm so glad that she did. Um, right? It's actually avoiding reality. It's actually avoiding talking about the pain that has happened there. It, av it avoids facing head-on the reality of how much the current moment hurts. And so these verses teach us to actually turn and to face reality head-on. Um, and I think sometimes Christians struggle with this more than anybody else. Because for whatever reason, Christians have somehow adopted the idea 
that actually to be a Christian and to follow Jesus means that instead of talking openly about how difficult your life is and how painful and difficult things are, instead we kind of put on a good face and are like, oh, God's just blessing me, hashtag blessed. Like, we don't—Christians are almost worse at this than normal folks. And I want you to know that being strong in the face of hardship is a good thing, but pretending that hard things aren't hard will not make you strong. Facing reality keeps us from fooling ourselves into thinking that everything's okay. So, as we're learning to lament for change in the midst of crisis, we're first properly oriented to ourselves, which is to recognize that we aren't self-sufficient and that we need God to help us. Second, it's properly oriented towards our situation, which means that we must face reality head-on, seeing all of our emotions and our own embarrassment and our own decline for what they are, that our problems require a real response from God. Now, if you're still with me, turn and let's look at restoration. Picking up in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Friends, this is the theme of the entire psalm restore us, which is why this song has a chorus. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved. This chorus is the key that unlocks the meaning of this psalm for us. When you and I hear the word restore, we may think of, you know, restoration hardware and how we want our houses to look and hundred-year-old reclaimed barn wood and how you can sand it down and put a nice wax finish on it. And, And that's what we think of when we think of restoration, this like changing of the exterior. But the meaning of this word is actually much deeper than that. A closer meaning of the word restore would be turn us, change us, convert us, transform us, make us something that we are not. That's what restore means. Asaph and the tribes of Judah are saying in the midst of threatening crisis, they're saying, God, we recognize that we've turned away from you. We're seeking to be self-sufficient instead of seeking your help. We've been fooling ourselves and saying that everything's okay when it's actually not. And the heart of the problem actually lies within our own hearts, that sin is actually at the heart of our problem here. You know, there's an old legend that may or may not be true that the New York Times once sent out a question to authors and journalists all over the world soliciting their response to one simple question, which is, what is wrong with the world? Like, what is wrong with all of the crises that we are facing? And there was one author uh, named G.K. Chesterton who famously replied, Dear Sir, I am yours truly. And the point, of course, is that identifying the need for our circumstances to change is not actually enough. That in this psalm, the author is using the vine as a metaphor for the people of God. And in fact, that he's praying that God would change the vine means he's recognizing that the vine, which is to say the people, have failed. That they actually need to change. You know, there's need for outer change as well. We don't want to put these two things against each other. Christians are not people who value spiritual things over physical things. I hope you know that. Our circumstances matter, and while there's a real need for deep inner change, there's also a need for outer circumstantial change as well. And this psalm takes that seriously. And we see it in the second half of this chorus, which echoes a blessing from the book of Numbers that Moses and Aaron were to give to the ancient people of Israel. And if you're not familiar with that reference... I would wager that many of you might actually be familiar with the words. 
which are these. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This chorus in Psalm 80, restore us, let your face shine on us, is a reference to this blessing. It's the psalmist saying, God, you promised us this blessing and we are not feeling it. We are not experiencing it. So would you come and would you change us so that we can receive it? And so we might summarize the entire psalm with this chorus, change us, God, so that we can receive your blessing and be saved. And so we want to end by asking, how is that change going to take place for us? If that is the case, if that change actually needs to happen, how is that change going to happen for us? How are we going to stop being self-sufficient, stop and, 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 and recognize our need for God? How are we going to stop fooling ourselves and telling ourselves that everything is okay when it's not? How are we going to change? You know, we actually heard the answer earlier in our confession in this service. Jesus says in John 15 verse 5, I am the true vine. You know, when Jesus says that, He's not like, he didn't like pick a cute agricultural reference where we kind of go, oh, that's neat. Like Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. That like makes sense because we're connected. Like Jesus picked that metaphor because that is the primary metaphor that runs through the entire Old Testament about God's people and what they were supposed to be and what they had failed to be. And so when Jesus says, I am the vine, what he is saying is everything that you are meant to be, all the ways that you are meant to relate to God and to the world and to yourselves, I am actually all of those things. And so if you're going to become that, you've got to be in me. That's why Jesus says, abide in me. You see, what the nation of Israel had only begun to be, Jesus was and totally is. Think about this. Like the vine, Jesus was brought out of Egypt, representing the way he would lead us out of slavery to self-sufficiency and self-deception. Like the vine, Jesus grew up strong. Isaiah 53 uses the same metaphor. It talks about Jesus growing up like a young plant representing the way that we are to grow up in our faith. Like the vine, Jesus was broken and ravaged when he was whipped and crucified, representing the punishment that comes from rejecting God, from turning away from him. Like the vine, Jesus perished, and on the cross he received what verse 16 in the psalm calls the rebuke of God's face. And we see this when Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus is experiencing is God's face not shining on him because he has taken our sin upon, upon him. And like verse 17, Jesus is the Son of Man who sits at God's right hand. And so, friends, apart from Jesus, Psalm 80 is just good advice that you and I can't follow. Apart from Jesus, Psalm 80 calls you and me to leave our self-sufficiency and our self-deception behind so that we can face reality and trust in God to actually take care of us. But apart from Jesus, we can't actually change to become those kind of people. And so it is only because Jesus fulfills everything that is described here that you and I can actually change. That's how it becomes good news for us. So here's how it works. If we put our faith in Jesus, if we unite ourselves to him in faith and in baptism, then we will become not a failed vine, but a faithful vine. As Jesus was not self-sufficient, but entirely dependent on God the Father, so we will become as well if we are in him. As Jesus did not deceive himself and avoid the pain of this world, but rather Jesus more so than any other human being actually faced and entered into the pain of the world, so we will as well if we are in him. And so through Jesus, we will begin to change. We will turn and we will be restored to God, which means that we will then be able to receive the blessing of his face shining on us, which is our salvation. 
Y'all, Psalm 80 teaches us to lament for our heart to change in the midst of crisis by giving us these three, these, these three things, the recognition that we need God's help, the reality that our circumstances and this pain is real, and then the restoration that we long for. Now, if you and I do this, if we actually put our faith in Christ and if we actually are united with Him and we begin to try to live out this change, here's what I think it will start to look like. First, we'll become the kind of people who are increasingly dependent on God for help as opposed to the natural way of things, which is to increasingly become self-sufficient. And this is especially true for a room like this filled with smart, competent, successful people. Rather than our lives and our trajectory increasingly being one of, I've got, this more over, I've got this more together with every passing year. Like, my life is more neat and tidy this year than it was last year because I'm working harder and I'm more competent than I used to be. Instead, this is the shape of our lives. We'll become more dependent on God as time goes on. This year, I'm more dependent on God than I was last year, which means I am less self-sufficient. We'll also become people who can speak vulnerably about how we feel and how difficult life is without fooling ourselves and without trying to fool other people. Because through Jesus, we'll have learned how to be properly oriented emotionally towards ourselves and towards the world without idolizing our emotions, right? Becoming a victim on one side and without shutting down our emotions, becoming robots on the other side. We don't want to be victims or robots. We want to be compassionate and resilient. Compassionate in that we are sensitive to our own emotions and the emotions of others, resilient in that they do not control us. We also become people who know what to do in the midst of crisis. We don't panic. We don't distract or avoid, but rather we are the kind of people who enter into crisis with a heart of lament. Y'all, in just a moment, we're going to come forward to take communion. And if you've been a part of Park Church for any length of time, then you'll know that this is a moment in the service where we walk forward with empty hands, bringing nothing so that we can receive everything from Jesus. This is where Jesus feeds us with Himself. There's an image in verse 5 where uh, there's the bread of tears and tears to drink in full measure. And I want you to think this morning about how each one of us has walked into this room carrying our own griefs, our own pain, which means that when we come forward for communion, we come forward carrying all of that pain with us, all of those tears. And we come to exchange them for a different kind of bread, which is the body of Jesus, and a different kind of drink, which is the blood of Jesus shed for us. And so as you come forward for communion, this is your opportunity to actually carry your grief forward and be met by Jesus himself so that he can heal you. And in that moment, you are then able to receive the blessing that God has for you. And so if you are ready to receive that blessing, then would you open your hands and through Jesus receive God's blessing to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.